thankful for the way these stories hold on to the lifetime we won't get back. I know these rivers carry. Welcome to Kankakee Podcast, where we talk about the people and places of Kankakee County. I'm Jake Lamore, and with it being uh, October, uh, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and I thought it would be a great idea to have someone who is an expert at uh, domestic violence and helping us be aware of it or help prevent it. And also, I feel like this guest would have come on anyway because she's a big supporter of the podcast so i'm happy to welcome uh jenny i'm i always mess up your last name and so does everyone else i know i'm not the only one but <laughs> give it your best <laughs> okay okay shane wetter yes perfect Yay! <laughs> all right that applause is more for you than me <laughs> actually it's, it's for it's for you welcome it's so great thank to, you great to be here <laughs> it's so great to have you here and i i want to say thank you for all the support um, you've given the podcast, you know, um, it, uh, it's really, it's really meant a lot to, to have someone like you in the community to be like, Hey, check out this podcast. It's really awesome. And, uh, it, it just means a lot. So thank you for that. Yes, you're welcome. It is really awesome. And I do feel like I'm talking about it on a weekly basis, uh, but I have enjoyed all of the episodes and everything. So I, I appreciate all of your hard work because I know this isn't something that happened overnight, <laughs> that there's no, a lot of energy and effort. So thank you for putting this together. Oh, you're you're too kind. Yeah, it, there There is a lot of work, but um, I find that I just love this. I just love doing this. I love learning oh, yeah. about people. Um, just... Uh, I love history. I've mm-hmm. always loved history. So and not that every episode is historical. Obviously, this one is not historical, but I love getting to know new people in the community and, mm-hmm. and learning that, hey, they're doing something really, really awesome, really supportive. And it's uh, it's just good to is sit down and have a great conversation mm-hmm. with someone. Yep, so. and I think that's exactly why I love it too. I'm not a native of Kankakee County, but I've lived here for about 10 years or so. Uh, and getting to know a lot of the the different individuals. Some are people, are the names that we all know, but then other individuals that I've gotten to know through the podcast, as well as the history of it. I love history just like you. Uh, and a, a quick funny story about that. I was at um, an executive director's breakfast for the Community Foundation and Chamber of Commerce, and I met Veronica from the Historical Society oh, for yeah, the first time right. ever there. And I, I heard her voice and was like, I know that voice. And it took me a while to place it. And then she like mentioned where she was from and everything. And I was just like weirdly excited, like Christmas morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So what a, I, I guess I, I want to take a quick survey since you're here. What's been your favorite episode? Oh, goodness. 
I don't know if I could choose a favorite because <clears throat> there's a lot of really, really good ones. Um, I don't think there's been any that I was like, mm, skip that episode. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I expect I expect that just because I'm, I'm sure there's things that people already know about or <clears throat> excuse me, that, you know, maybe they're not interested in, mm-hmm. you know, because like, yeah. like, for instance, maybe like the episode with my grandfather, like maybe they really don't care to hear about printing. <laughs> the printing press. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, uh, I, I don't really care I about it was printing interesting. presses. Yeah. But, but yeah, you know, just for example. So, so I think uh, the history ones, I really enjoy those where you partner with the historical, historical society. Um, I really enjoyed Eric Peterson's, uh, Kent Wade's, Mike Tamano's. See, now I feel like I'm going to leave people out because there's so many. I, you should. It was so funny. The, the day, I think it was... It was like the day or, or two after Mike Tamano's episode dropped mm-hmm. and him and I worked together. Mm-hmm. Um, I had seen him at the radio station and he's like, yeah, uh, Jenny Shane Wetter was was just by and she's like, yeah, I just listened to your whole life story. <laughs> it was very true. You guys went all over the place <laughs> in that one. Yeah, and, and uh, in a fascinating way, like I didn't know his his connection with comedy and everything and that makes perfect sense now that I, I have gotten to know him a little bit more. Not that yeah. we like no, get drinks I know, or but, anything, but like no, through but the radio station. Yeah, you know? you're a, a regular uh, um, a guest, I guess, mm-hmm. um, on at uh, you know the Milner Media stations. Mm-hmm. So and yeah. probably probably uh, most of the actually, yeah, you were. Uh, I know you talked to Bill Yonka mm-hmm. on X Country not too long ago. Yep. So in fact, when he was here, I think this was a conversation him and I had off mic. Um, he was asking me. I think he was asking me who else I was going to have on, or if I was looking for suggestions. And I had said, "Well, uh, Jenny from Harbor House is is going to be on." And he's like, oh, good. I was actually just going to suggest her. I just oh. I think he had just talked to you that morning mm-hmm. on his show on X Country. So I think I think that's how that got brought up. Yeah, but. his and I'm not saying this just because he complimented me, but <clears throat> your uh, interview with him. So that was probably what, two weeks ago or so. Yeah. Well, I'm yep. not sure when this is going to drop. Yeah. No, it'd uh, be two weeks from the time this is going to drop. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but that one, I was like, you know, I could keep on listening to you guys. <laughs> it was just a, a wonderful combination. I think I posted it on your Instagram or something like yeah. that. But of like the history and the humor, uh, you you married that in a wonderful way. Uh, yeah, there's just been a lot of really good guests that you've had. And I look forward to continuing to learn more about our community, the people and places of Kankakee. Uh, Jake Lee's was really interesting as well. I mean, I'd heard some of those stories before, but I never ceases to amaze me. <laughs> yeah, it that, that's exactly what it is for me too. It never ceases to amaze me the things I learn even about well-known people mm-hmm. in the community. So, and that's why you're here. We'll quit <laughs> talking about the podcast and actually talk about Jenny and and Harbor House, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so you you have been in Kankakee for 10 years. Where are you originally from? I am originally from a very small rural town in central Illinois. Um, so it's called Leroy. Uh, it's basically right between Bloomington and Champaign on uh, 74. And I was basically, I, I moved there when I was just a couple of months old. Uh, my family was originally from uh, kind of like Macomb, Schuyler County area. Okay, uh, That's where I was born. But then we moved to Leroy and my parents still live there. Uh, so it's probably a population of 3,500. And that's where... My story began. I've heard of Leroy. I'm not sure if it's from my father or I wouldn't be surprised. He, my my dad goes on these tractor rides <laughs> all over the 
region. I don't know if you've ever these these just like rides down to Leroy in a tractor. Well, like, <laughs> so so a bunch of farmers in their in their spare time they mm-hmm. they like to uh, collect antique tractors. Okay, and part of not not all of them, but there's a a big group of farmers they they will take these antique tractors on rides. Oh. long rides and a, and a big group of them and they'll go for some of these rides are actually a couple days long wow yeah so like do they stop and camp along the route or like <laughs> there's <laughs> something they they get like a hotels okay. or something that like so cool yeah so so my dad um has a an antique tractor himself mm-hmm. uh and the last couple years or so he goes on a lot of these different rides and a lot of them take place in more rural parts than Kankakee County. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some tractor rides that happen here in the county, but yeah. a lot of the the bigger ones happen, you know, in the mm-hmm. more the, uh, the south of, of yeah. Kankakee County. So They don't ride through Chicago or anything? <laughs> Not in Cook County? Got no, it. probably. Okay. They probably, yeah. I, I, I don't <laughs> think they'd like that too much. They probably wouldn't. But that would be funny to see a bunch of yeah. antique tractors in downtown going Chicago. Down Michigan. Yeah. yeah, just going down <laughs> Michigan Avenue, just cruising along. And that's the thing. Like, you know, these are antique tractors. They only go so fast. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. so. Probably all of 10, <laughs> 10 miles per hour. I'm not sure how <laughs> fast his goes. But uh, long story short, um, I, the, the name Leroy does yeah. sound familiar Leroy rides. Okay. So what brought you to Kankakee? Was it working for, I, you're still relatively new to Harbor House. Yes. It's been three years. Three years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was three years in August. August 20 was my anniversary date. Uh, I originally came to the area for college. Um, So I remember when I was a junior in high school or something like that, you know, you get to that age of doing all the college visits, figuring out What's the next big step in my journey? All of those fun details. Uh, And I had looked at quite a few different schools. uh, And at the end of the day, I was like, you know, I'm going to have a good experience no matter where I go because it's what you're going to make of it. Um, And I just knew my myself well enough that I'm like, it doesn't matter if I go to state school, private school, anything like that. But I'm very close to my grandfather. Um, So much like you. (laughs) Um, We both have that kind of special relationship, which was why I enjoyed that one so much, too, because I'm like, I could kind of imagine. (laughs) Well, I I did that in a way. I actually helped him write his memoir. Oh, Um, that's funny, because my my oldest brother, Josh, helped my grandfather write mm -hmm. his memoir as well. So it was so fascinating, which that's a, a whole story of its self. Um, yeah. But c- to get back to your question. I would love to hear about that sometime. Yeah. It was quite a process, long process, but fascinating. And I would do it all over again a hundred times. Um, so, but I was very close to him and very close to him still. Uh, he's living. Um, I actually just saw him yesterday. He went to Olivet Nazarene College at the time and graduated in 1958. He and my, my grandma actually both went there. Um, they were from this small rural town up in Wisconsin and both ended up at college here. They had known each other growing up and everything, but didn't really see each other until they ended And they up here. both wound up at the same college. Yep, at the same college and had started dating when they were here. Um, but I have always been very close to my my grandfather. You know, I, when I was in junior high or high school, I had to, you know, pick between the sports. You can't do soccer and basketball anymore. So I, I chose basketball because he used to be a basketball coach. And I was like, you know, I'll, I'll have a good experience either way. I don't really have a strong preference. Um, so it was just something that I, I wanted to be able to have that connection with him. So then I went to Olivet for that connection. And that's what originally brought me to the community. Okay. Wow. This is, is the, I, I always talk about Olivet, whether it's, I, I don't know if I've talked about it much on the podcast, but I was, I was asked the other day, 
about Olivet mm-hmm. and how the community feels about Olivet, you know. And I said, well, no matter how you feel about Olivet Nazarene University as a resident of the county, you can't deny that they bring mm-hmm. so many um, incredible people to the table, uh, yeah. whether it's just for the, you know, the four years or better that they're at Olivet Nazarene University or they end up staying here mm-hmm. and living here like yourself. Yep. So and and I bet did, did you do you know if your your grandparents ever considered settling here? I mean, of course, I mean, Bourbon A was so different in the 50s than it yeah. was uh, now. They did live here for quite a while. My um, oldest uncle was born here. um, And so they graduated college. Well, my grandfather did. My grandmother didn't complete her bachelor's degree here. She later did that, I think, over at Western Illinois University. And then she got her master's there as well. Um, But they had started their life and family and career here. And then I don't remember... I didn't know I should have brushed up on my grandpa's autobiography <laughs> before coming. I guess you should have, yeah. Uh, but they eventually ended out in like the Macomb area where I was later born, where my dad was born, mm-hmm. uh, and my parents then first started out out there. That's such a, a far Macomb and, and Bourbon A. It's, it's quite a stretch. <laughs> it is. And I, I'm trying to remember. I know that he did um, insurance for a while. He also used to work at a chicken hatchery. Um, he His full-time career once he got more into it was school administration. Um, so he did that and um, he worked at VIT. If you're familiar with Schuyler County, that's one of the school districts out there. I don't know if it's still out there um, or if they've combined, consolidated, but that was where he then eventually ended up moving to. And he now lives with my parents. He moved in with my parents probably about 10, 15 years ago. Okay. Now, growing up, did your grandfather have, what, what kind of stories did he have about Olivet or about Kankakee County or the, you know, the Bourbon mm-hmm. area. The tornado. Um, so I remember the tornado. He talked a lot about that, taking off the top floor of Burke administration. Uh, and then also when all of the um, veterans came back um, from, I am blanking on which war. Well, that would have been probably if you said he graduated in 1958, 58, yeah. probably the Korean War. Yes. Yeah. So they used to have kind of like that village um, where it was a lot of more like barrack style housing, yeah. um, kind of back where like, um, I think it's called like Snowbarger Park or something where like the, the football fields and everything like back okay. there used to be just like a lot of kind of trailer parks, barracks type setting. So I know that that's where my grandma and he had lived. Um, and there's a, all of it has an archive department so they might be an interesting interview to talk a little bit more about like the history and everything they um, have a great facebook page with kind of posting some of those memories but there's a deep history in um some of the stories i remember when my uncle was first born here well you're only born once so <laughs> it was the first and last time being born here uh they had mentioned it was um right during a river flooding so there had been like a massive amount of rain or something like that and he talked about like how hard it was to get to the hospital uh riverside i don't think was here at the time because he uh, yeah riverside started in the 60s i I was thinking yeah Yeah. um saint mary's was the the would have been well i don't know if it was the only one but yeah it might have been the only one i i'm I'm a little rusty on that but i'm almost positive riverside (laughs) started in the 1960s I don't know if there was something before that. Mm-hmm. That's something that I have to brush, <laughs> brush yeah. up on. That's we why are getting I, out of my area of expertise quickly. <laughs> and a little bit on mine, too. I mean, I know a little bit of history of both St. Mary's and Riverside, but um, I uh, 
I don't recall off the top of my head, but mm -hmm. so it was hard to get to the hospital in mm -hmm. Kankakee. From all the flooding and everything like that. So they had to take multiple routes and they were like, well, we almost thought we just had him in the car. But luckily they had made it to whatever hospital they went to yeah. um, and were able to get everything safely figured out. I would have imagined that right um, Ken, you know, Kennedy Driver 45 there, mm -hmm. it, it gets kind of low. Yeah. So I, like I imagine it always floods there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it, it probably would have been flooded right there. So no way to get mm -hmm. to Court Street. Yeah. And, and he always referred to like Kinky State Hospital, which from my understanding is um help me out. Shapiro. Shapiro, thank yes. you. But I was like, I don't think that you would have had the child at Shapiro. <laughs> but <laughs> No, I don't I mean, I suppose it could have happened, but as far as I know, that was strictly for mental health. I, that was my understanding, too. That's always been my understanding mm -hmm. as well. So, I mean, it's, whether there was a period in time where they took. Yeah, I have. They no had clue. a wing mm -hmm. open that was actually for, you know, maybe mm -hmm. maybe one of the other hospitals couldn't take. Yeah. Uh, births or something like that at the time. So that's they, which like it's been what 60 years more than 60 years since that happened which uh, yeah. between like age and everything your memory can um, can deceive you at times but he had always talked about having to cross a river and so then I was like well St. Mary's if that was the only hospital you didn't have to necessarily cross a river to get there um, so possibly where Shapiro now is but I have no clue for sure and <laughs> it was uh, probably it was probably St. Mary's yeah or <laughs> Or Riverside, if that was in existence at that time. Yeah. But mm -hmm. but yeah, that would have been interesting though. That would be uh, <clears throat> that'd be interesting to find out mm -hmm. going back and seeing if anything like and it's that. It's probably on happened. his birth record, I would guess, his certificate. I would think so. It so, should say where. Yeah, that's my goal say. for the years to figure yeah. that out. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of curious listeners right now. <laughs> They're like, hmm, where was her I uncle wonder. born? <laughs> yeah, where was the uncle born? Oh, that's good. Um. So, so you, what did you, when you started at Olivet Nazarene University, what was your major? I studied business. Um, so I was primarily business administration, um, then with concentrations on nonprofit administration, accounting, and Spanish. Um, so that was my four years there. And then I was very involved with student employment working and then some of their campus activities. It was kind of cool that when you did come to Olivet, unlike some maybe some other students, not all of them, but some other students that come here from different areas might not know too much about the area. But mm -hmm. having your your grandfather's stories and knowledge, you know, you walk in there and be like, oh, yeah, there was a tornado here back in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, it, it's it's funny, too, because I have some second cousins like my dad's cousins. Um, one of their families lives in the area and then some of their kids. And I remembered I was in, I think I was a freshman and I was in Target and I hadn't fully put that together yet. And my my dad's cousin stopping there like, Jenny? And I, it took me a while to place it because I, I see them every year at our big Shane Water family oh, reunion. Okay. And I was like, Don? And so I then would, it would kind of become a game of where could I run into them? Yeah. Uh, so I had some other family, but I never saw them quite as much, but it's it's fun to have some of those connections. So your time at, at Olivet Nazarene University, were you there like the typical four years mm -hmm. or, and did you end up getting your, your bachelor's in business? Yes, or? I did. Mm -hmm. And then uh, what was your time like at Olivet here? What, what were, you know, take us through the, the memory lane of. Oh gosh. Um, 
a lot has happened since then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it was a good student experience. Uh, like I said at the beginning, it is what you make of it. Uh, so that's I knew that was going to be true of any university that I went to. And so I wanted to make sure that I got my money's worth and my investments um, out of that experience. So I you know, worked hard in the classes. I did three internships while I was a student, um, lived up in Flint, Michigan uh, for a summer with some of my, they still are my Michigan parents, no matter what, uh, but I got to do kind of like a, a host family up there as I worked at a, a homeless shelter, uh, did an internship with Riverside, an internship with, I think United Way was the third one. Okay. Um, so those two were both local. Uh, had gotten to uh, develop some mentorships and relationships with some of the professors uh, that really helped to pour me in prepare me for where I am. There are always people that I can still reach out to and, and call and do oftentimes. Um, one of them had actually kind of prompted and uh, while I was a student, I started something called the Student Philanthropy Council. That was uh, a professor had had this vision and he was like, you know, I've been waiting for somebody to come along and would you be interested in doing this? And I, I had taken like 17 to 18 hours every semester um, because it was the same. You paid the same amount, whether you took 15 hours or 18 hours. And so being from a small rural community where my parents worked really hard to get where they were, I was going to take as many classes to get to that 18 hours because yeah, yeah. I didn't want to leave money on the table. Yeah, you wanted yeah. to get your money's so worth. So like even one semester, I took a piano class, uh, which I, <laughs> I come from a background of music. So that was helpful. And I couldn't. I did not know that. Yeah, I couldn't play anything for you now. No, <laughs> so, you don't play anymore? No, oh. I don't. It was just that one semester because I wanted to use up the time. And I it was wonderful. Had a, a great professor for that. Um, but and I uh, digress, but it was an overall really good student experience. And I um, my senior year, I was ready to kind of skate out easy. So I think I had scheduled for like 13 or 15 hours and it was going to be my easiest year yet because I had taken the 18 full course load leading up to that. And so he's like, well, you know, I know that you had a lighter load. So would you be interested in, in launching this this group and everything? So I did that, which was really helpful. Uh, and then after or as a part of doing that, I got to know a lot of the individuals in their office of development, which is the fundraising office. Uh, and in, in doing that, I kind of identified some of the, the gaps within their, within the team of just some things of like, you know, these are some areas that you could focus on to strengthen it, whether that's um, young alumni giving or uh, I'm trying to remember what all it was, but I identified four focus areas that I then um, met with their uh director of development, I think it was, and then um, vice president of institutional advancement. And I said, here's where your gaps are and here's where I, I think I can solve them for you if you hire me. Um, so I had proposed that. And after like seven or eight months, I started that conversation when I was a senior in college. I was then hired um, for that position that I had kind you, of proposed. You, cre you created, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then I was able to uh, graduate. I had worked part-time in um, the marketing department for probably about a month or two before I started this full-time job. Uh, and so glad that I did. I met one of my best friends through through my time there and learned a lot about writing because um, one of my my mentors, um, she became my my boss for that one, two months, uh, and she wrote all of their press releases. So that really honed my writing and my um, ability to communicate through that, through that um, mode. Uh, and I, yeah, then started in development as a coordinator for development, I think was my first title. And I worked there for five years and ended as director of annual giving, um, kind of progressed um, about every two years, got a, a promotion and more responsibilities. And then after five years was ready to look for an, the next adventure. So coming, so 
from Olivet then working for Olivet, is that where Harbor House came into play or what what came after working for Olivet? That is where Harbor House came into play. So while I was at Olivet, I was on United Way's board of directors. Okay. Um, so I had learned about um, Harbor House and a lot of our community uh, agencies when I was uh, serving on the board. Uh, I think I was on the board for about three years before I had to resign because I started at Harbor House and that was a conflict of interest. Obviously, uh, yeah. But it was, I, I loved my time with United Way, uh, just getting to know, because I, like I'd said, I wasn't originally from this area. I had gotten very involved in the community while I was a student, but it was different. Uh, you kind of get involved from an arm's length uh, because you, I wasn't planning on staying in the area, actually. Uh, when I graduated and got the job at Olivet, my parents were over the moon because they'd always expected me to move abroad, move international. And that's something that has always been a huge passion of mine. I love to travel. Uh, even when we were talking about the um, the tractors at the very beginning, it, my mind got to thinking about the subcultures of the United States and how that's such an interesting subculture I'd never considered. <laughs> uh, even yeah. being from rural Illinois, where like my you're surrounded by yes, I had and farmers, uh, you know, friends, and classmates that rode tractors to work, and then <laughs> I rode my motorcycle to work, and so it was just all these random things in the parking lot. Um, but I, I was on United Way's board of director had board of directors and had learned about Harbor House through that. And then I um, was also involved and also involved in Zonta Club of Kankakee. And I remember I was at a Zonta meeting sitting next to the the board president at that time. It was um, Cheryl Trudeau, just a wonderful human. Can't say enough good things about her. Uh, isn't and, Cheryl the president now of, isn't she still the president of Zonta? Or, or I, I saw that she just became governor. Of Governor. a district. That's yes. what it mm -hmm. is. So okay. she just got a great honor with that. And she's a wonderful leader. She was my first um, board president that I worked with at Harbor House. But at this dinner that I was at sitting next to her, she was like, you know, our executive director just submitted their letter of resignation. And it hadn't even crossed my mind. I said, oh, you know, I know that that can be a tough process looking for a new director. Good luck. I hope you find the right person and didn't think anything more of it. And now I can't. I know I've met the director before the executive director for Harbor House that came before you. I met her a couple of times and now her name escapes me. Rosa Hernandez Warner. Okay. Mm -hmm. I I don't know why. I actually that's not who I was picturing, but uh, Robin Savage was the executive director before that. So I'm only the fourth executive director that Harbor House has ever had and we started okay. serving the community in the nineteen seventies. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So I you know, had, Cheryl had told me about that vacancy, didn't yeah. think anything of it because at the time um, I had actually at that point applied to probably 10 or 15 international jobs with like the UN and some other opportunities. Wow. So I, I wasn't <laughs> planning on uh, necessarily staying in the area. I've come to love this community and I did at that time. Uh, but I, I knew that I was like, well, if I want to move abroad, maybe now is the time to do it. Uh, but with only five years of fundraising experience and none of like the social services, because I I didn't have, I've never taken, I actually, I think I took one social work class in college and that was um, a class that Houston Thompson was teaching. I can't even think of what it was, uh, but I, that's not really where my world has been. Um, it's been more on the business side. So I, I hadn't really been qualified for some of those international positions that I was applying for. Uh, but then I had a lot of people approach me about the Harbor House job. Uh, one of my mentors, Yvonne Chalfon, she was uh she kind of kept on nudging me. She's like, just think about it. You know, I, I think you'd be really good and it fits with my personal mission. Um, so I 
was raised by a very strong uh, mother, well, very strong parents, uh, and they instilled that social activism, that that doing right. So um, although I'm from a smaller family, I only have uh, two biological siblings, but I was raised, our, our family was a foster family. Um, so there were always at least two to three other people in the house. Um, there was at one point in time, a survivor of domestic violence and her children. Uh, my mom woke us up in the middle of the night, said, grab your laundry baskets. We're moving her out and she's coming home with us. Wow. Um, so I, I had been exposed to a lot of that. Um, and even just like crazy car chases throughout Bloomington of chasing somebody that my mom had seen this guy push a woman out of the car while he was turning and you know, like kind of berate her and everything. And somebody else had stopped to take care of her and mom threw her phone. I mean, she's like, Jenny, we're going after him. Oh and so gosh. she's like, call 911. So I'm on with dispatch as their race, as we were racing through town. And so just a lot of those things. And you know, what's so funny is that still she's um, mid sixties and still has that fire. Uh, she just called me on Saturday and she's um, originally from Springfield. She was visiting her mom and she's like, you know, I just saw this guy start to do something. And so I whipped my van around and I called Jenny because it was like, she's the only person who would be able to tell me what to do and all that. But she was ready to go take on this person that was bothering these other individuals. And she just can't stand for any kind of injustice. And so when you're raised with that, it's something that you definitely internalize. And my parents set wonderful examples of what it looks like to uh, be active in the community, to be a difference maker, to care for individuals who have a different story than you, um, have experienced trauma that I am so fortunate I never had to experience that, um, yes, we had our struggles and everything, but it is far easier than what some other individuals have had to face. Uh, so it was, you know, I, I joke with my, with a lot of my people in my life of how I was prepared for this job before I even realized it. It sounds <laughs> like it. Yeah. That's so, it, it's, it's really funny to hear the stories about your mom and how we're going after him, you know, oh, get in yeah. the car, we're going to go chase <laughs> and him she's down. And she's so funny. There was one time um, she went camping with her girlfriends uh, that I don't remember where exactly they were at, but there was this couple that had, that was driving through the area and they got out of their car in this random location. Like it wasn't even at a campground. I think it was like in somebody's yard out in rural central Illinois. Uh, and they had like witnessed all this. I think that he may have hit her and everything. And my mom went sprinting towards them, grabbed the keys from the ignition as they are on the other side of the car and then starts running back. And then the guy starts chasing my mom because my mom said, you are not going to get away with that here. That's not OK what you're doing and everything. And now that I have a lot more domestic violence training, I would recommend other avenues on maybe <laughs> safer say, ways. I was going <laughs> to say, I mean, these stories are great, but I'm sure it's not like, yeah, so this is what you can do when you encounter yes, domestic yeah. violence. It's like, actually, don't do that. Yes. Like, I love my mom. I love her to death. But don't don't do that. This is a wonderful teaching opportunity. Yeah, that's <laughs> but true. But she like threw the keys ahead because there are all the other women that were then behind her of like, Kathy, what the heck are you doing? Mm. Like, of course, she's going to go be Kathy and, you know, save the world as she can. Yeah. Uh, but my mom threw the keys ahead to everybody else and like yelled at them to call 911. And she just faced down this guy and. I was just like, you, it is not okay to treat somebody like that and you will not get away with that. And they know all of the law enforcement in our area. Um, they, with it just being such a small town, my parents are very involved with like the ambulance services. So they, I don't think it surprised the police when they got a call <laughs> that, from my mom. Yeah, <laughs> and she's like, got oh, the, Kathy Shane Wetter's here. Right. Again. She's <laughs> got the, yeah, she's got the in there, you know. She throws out the bat signal and they come out. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, does she have a bat signal on her, her car, maybe, and just throws that out there? So you yourself haven't done anything like that, I would imagine. 
Well, with, only because I was drug into it with her. Yeah. Well, I mean, like with, uh, you know, with Harbor House now, obviously that's not exactly how it no. works. <laughs> no, that is not our approach to things. Um, in, in retrospect, with more training, I see how lethal and dangerous those situations could have been, not just from mom, but also then uh, potentially making it even worse for the victim um, in that situation of creating a, a more challenging dynamic for them. Uh, but I, I'm glad that I got to witness that side of my mom of just no matter what, you do everything that you can do. Um, I exert my energy in a slightly different way. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm glad that she taught that and both of my parents that they instilled that in us kids growing up. Yeah, you really were trained and set up to yeah. do this job. It was just meant to be. So you you were at uh, on the board of directors for United Way. Mm -hmm. And for those that aren't familiar, United Way, just to put it simply, they are an organization that funds a lot of of nonprofit organizations in the area, mm -hmm. uh, including Harbor House, which mm -hmm. is one of the biggest ones. Now, Harbor House, um, let, let's go just a, a briefly like how Harbor House started and what, what it's all about. Yeah. So Harbor House started, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, in the 1970s by a group of very passionate advocates and citizens of Kankakee County. Um, so it was some families that came together and were tired of the lack of services, the injustice that they saw. So they were the change that they wanted to see in the world. Uh, they used their own personal homes as the safe homes and um, were able to connect with victims through their their landlines and everything. Uh, so it started incredibly grassroots, which I love that about our, our community is that we find a need and we jump on it and we address it. And it was actually pretty early on in the domestic violence movement. So this was in the 70s. The Illinois Domestic Violence Act didn't even pass until... 84 or 86, um, wow. something along those lines. That um, sounds so late. Yes, it is. It's incredibly late. And that's true of everything for the um, gender-based violence legislation and everything. Like even the Violence Against Women's Act wasn't passed until around that same time. Uh, so we were on the front end of it, which I love that about yeah, us. We, so that's we something had to be this, so proud of. We had this group in the 70s. Mm -hmm. or so so yeah. that's, yeah. So then we became um, official and then in the early 80s, you know, did all the paperwork to file as a, an organization and everything uh, and then had been through some different facility struggles with where we would be located. Uh, and then our location, we've got three different locations, actually, um, one that was most recently added within the past year and then two others, which if you're familiar with Harbor House, have been involved with Harbor House, uh, you know where those are. That's Obviously, confidential not, location. I was yeah. going to say, I'm not, we're not going to tell you. And the address is. But yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> nope, not doing that. Yeah, go, come visit us today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> come visit us online at online. harborhousedv.org. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Um, so we had been through some different struggles with different facilities and everything. And then the place that we're um, where our shelter is currently located used to be a, an old doctor's office. Uh, so that had been donated to the organization. There had been some expansions onto that um, to help with meeting the the growing needs of the community. Uh, and I don't want to say growing needs because domestic violence was new, but it was just more awareness and connection with services uh, because domestic violence has been here since the dawn of age. Yes. Uh, and it's something that we didn't talk about it for so long and sometimes still don't talk about it enough because the more that you uh, let things like that hide in the shadows, the more that they can proliferate, the more that they can just, you know, 
integrate with society become socially accepted norms, which isn't okay. Um, but that's something that I, I'm so glad that they had that vision and started that so early on and then just to see how it's grown. Uh, and also the longevity of the executive directors, that it was in the 1970s and I'm only number four. That's, for per, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I stand on the shoulders of some great individuals who brought it as far as it is um, and wonderful team members. I, I love my team. I can't ever imagine not having worked with them. Uh, like some of them, I'm like, I feel like I've known you my whole life, which <laughs> when you go through trauma in the trenches with people, you you develop those, those bonds, of course. Uh, but there's been a lot of individuals who've dedicated their blood, sweat, and tears to making this organization what it is. Uh, and I'm, I'm forever indebted to them. I think it's, it's wonderful and I love what I do. So with October being Domestic Violence Awareness Month, what are some of the things that Harbor House does to raise awareness about that in, in our community? I know there's usually several different events and, mm-hmm. and obviously fundraisers. There's fundraisers all year round, mm-hmm. but what are some of the things you've been doing currently? It's an interesting time because we're also still in the middle of a pandemic. Yes. Um, so the the awareness has been of the domestic violence, but also the the impact of the pandemic on domestic violence. Um, so just with helping individuals to see that there has been a huge societal issue, um, a, a crisis, if you will, um, across the board. So we tried to have a lot of different events to connect with people where they're at. So some individuals are comfortable with gathering in-person activities. So uh, we host some different things for them. We have the candlelight vigil on October 25, which I think would be the past by the time it's maybe. I'm looking at <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, let's see. Actually, this comes out on the 25th. Okay. As so we're that talking day we, right now. Yeah. So. so we have the candlelight vigil that evening. Uh, that is going to be at the Kinky County Courthouse steps. Uh, so that is to bring awareness to the victims who've lost their lives locally and then also nationally throughout the, the pandemic. We've seen seven losses of life in our own community uh, in that time frame, which is not normal for our community. Uh, it's it's very tragic. Uh, but then we also take a time to celebrate the survivors because, uh, yes, there's been an increase in, in the violence that we've seen, the physical violence escalating to homicide. Uh, but there's also been a lot of people who've come out of this year with the deck stacked against them and the strength that they have shown, the courage that they found within themselves, the creativity to survive a terrorist in their relationship. Uh, we want to make sure that we we call that out and that we uh, celebrate all of their hard work and energy and efforts uh, and also making sure that individuals know that if this resonates with you, that if you've been through this, if you're going through this, uh, continuing to make sure that people know about the services. Uh, so that's one event that we have coming up. And then the other one that will have uh, that will be coming up by the time this drops will be on the 30th, uh, partnering again with Zanta, which I mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, we have the Empowerment Walk. That's an annual event that they host in support of survivors of domestic violence as well as Harbor House. Uh, so we're going to be out at the um, Kankakee Civic Auditorium, uh, Governor Small Memorial Park, to do a different kind of empowerment walk. It's more going to be stations-based um, with different themes for each each station, such as you know signs to watch for, how to help a friend, uh, services available, um, 
in our own community that you you don't have to travel somewhere else for it and that everything is is nice and local and free and confidential. So helping to, to talk about that. But then we also have some series that we're doing through Facebook. So for individuals who don't want to gather in person, we do um, twice a week, sometimes three times a week, an educate, advocate video. So we go in depth um, for about five, 10 minutes on one specific topic. So for example, I did our very first one and I talked about domestic violence in our community. So I gave some statistics of the numbers that we've seen increasing. Um, even with our courthouse, the judicial system, they have seen their numbers skyrocket. Same thing with law enforcement, that this has been a, a big issue. Uh, we've answered 6,000 hotline calls since the pandemic has started. Oh my God. Um, our, our numbers are, are, outrageous. Uh, but at the same time, I'm so glad that people are reaching out because uh, I would be more concerned if we if didn't they see that. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If your numbers, if the domestic violence numbers, cases in the court mm -hmm. system were high and your numbers at mm -hmm. Harbor House weren't matching that. Yes. I know I was I was listening to uh, Rob West on the Valley report mm -hmm. the news and he had sound clips from I think it was Sheriff Downey mm -hmm. and maybe even Jim Rowe, yep. both of them were talking about the domestic violence cases are through the roof mm -hmm. right now. Yep. Um, and we're seeing that too. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of conversations behind the scenes that the community isn't seeing uh, with entities like um, Sheriff Downey, State's Attorney Rowe, uh, Chief Allen Swinford from Mantino Police, um, Kinky City Commander Donnell Austin. Uh, with law enforcement, he oversees investigations, some really exciting projects uh, that we're all collaborating on to try to address this. Um, so one very much on the beginning is called the Domestic Violence Task Force. So how can we collaborate even better as law enforcement, um, prosecution and advocacy organizations to better address the domestic violence that we're seeing, making sure that survivors can get connected to resources and also that we're holding abusers accountable for what they're doing, uh, for all of the, the harm that they're causing and just the threat to community safety. Like a lot of people, you know, when you think of domestic violence, you think it's it's a family issue. You know, it's uh, something that happens behind closed doors, like you don't talk about it. Uh, and that's, I think, more so of probably our grandparents' generation, maybe a little bit our parents' generation, but we're yeah. seeing it change with us of you might think that it doesn't impact society, but it has that direct connection. 54% of mass shootings, the root cause is domestic violence. It's starting as domestic violence and then permeating um, into different situations that it didn't have to kill all those people if you had addressed this one this one issue. And then it also cost our economy $3.6 trillion uh, to address this social issue. And then that's not even thinking of the kids that are impacted. It's estimated about 10 to 15 million children are exposed to domestic violence every year. And domestic violence is a learned and a chosen behavior. Kids are seeing that in their homes um, or friends' homes or other family members' homes. It's being reinforced through society. Think of all of the music that is about you know, harming somebody, the movies that we see that normalize it, uh, that aren't calling that out. Uh, and so all of that is playing a role into continuing down this this trajectory that we can't keep going this direction. Our community cannot withstand it. And our community is better than this. Like we have a wonderful community and some advocates have come out of the woodwork that I I'm so blessed to know them, uh, that they've come alongside and, you know, a lot of individuals through our community commission to end domestic violence. That's another new project initiative that we launched, that it's empowering the community to get involved because it's not just on, you know, Sheriff Downey, on Chief Swinford, on State's Attorney Rowe, on 
me or my team. Because if it's only up to us to do something and to change it, that it right, it's not going to happen. It's hopeless. Right? Yes, all it's of us. All can of help. us. Yeah, mm-hmm. all of us can help. Um, you know, to as little as to much as we can. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone can do their part. And when it, I, I'm curious, like when it comes to working with you know the Kankakee County Sheriff's Department and things like that. When they come across cases, do they give you a call? Is that how that works? I mean, or because obviously some of these these survivors or these victims, they need mm-hmm. they need a place to go. I know sometimes they contact the the victim. Obviously, will contact you directly, mm-hmm. of course, in a lot of cases. But do you get calls from the area, uh, you know, police agencies and things like that? It depends on the situation. Um, But that is something that uh, with the local departments, we have been working really hard over the past year and a half to close that gap uh, to make sure that we're getting connected to the survivors that need those services. Um, So some of our departments will kind of give us a heads up, sending us some of the police reports of here's somebody that you need to talk to um, if they qualify for your services. Uh, so then we'll reach out to to that survivor and just see how they're doing. You know, we are not associated with law enforcement. Um, wanted to make sure that you're okay. Is there anything that you need? Uh, here's some free services available, whether it's our services or something else in the community that we can connect them to. Uh, that's been an initiative that we launched probably about a year and a half ago. Pandemic has, you know, slowed everything um, across the board that I think we all thought we could get a lot more done this past year than we did. Um, But we're we're working to continue that and to grow it, to expand it to more of the departments because it's helping to make sure that survivors know the services. And if they don't want services, that is completely okay. We just want to make sure that they know that um, there is something available to them if that's something they want at that time. Uh, And then also empowering law enforcement. We do a lot of roll call trainings. um, So we're in most of the local departments uh, at least once a quarter to help educate uh, our you know, first responders okay. on what it's like to be walking into a domestic violence situation, uh, which I, I praise all of our law enforcement that are walking into those situations because the dynamics of domestic violence are so different than almost any other crime. Uh, it's a lot more emotions driven. It's a lot more um, it can escalate quicker than most other things, as we have already seen. Yeah, it's completely different from walking into a, a burglary, know, a burglary, or a like drug yes. bust, or mm-hmm. any of those. It's so different. Yeah. So uh, we ha- are make sure that we are always a resource to those departments, uh, and we've built some wonderful relationships over the the past year and a half. Well, actually, longer than that. Uh, that's something you know. I'm standing on the shoulders of people who came before me and those doors were open with that. And so it's just continuing to take care of those relationships and uh, make sure that we're meeting not just survivors where they're at, but also law enforcement, EMS, um, prosecution, everything like that, because we're all coming at this trauma with our own baggage with our own exposure, with our own um, misconceptions of what it's like. Maybe we were raised in an abusive home or maybe we never experienced it. Maybe our family judged somebody who was in a situation like that. Yeah. So uh, well, kind of breaking now, those down. Now that you bring that up, what are some of the, the misconceptions about domestic violence? How much time do we have? <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's you know. um, so I can just touch on some of the myths that we we see. Yeah. Um, so one of them is a question that probably drives me most insane when I get it is, well, why don't they just leave? You know, it must not be that bad if they don't leave. There's a hundred reasons why they don't just leave. Um, number one, it is the most dangerous time. 
when somebody is preparing to leave an abusive relationship, that's where if it were to escalate to homicide, it is most likely going to be at that time because everything about domestic violence is power and control. Yes. The abuser is trying to gain all of the power and control over their partner, uh, whether that is a spouse, a dating partner uh, in a caregiving relationship. You know, when you think of elder abuse, parent child relationship, everything like that is, you know, some, even roommates um, that can fall under domestic violence, too, with that that shared intimate dwelling. Uh, so. With that power and control slipping away, the abuser is going to do everything they can to get it back. So when they think about leaving, the survivor is thinking through all of these different dynamics. They're thinking of all of the threats they've received up to that point, that fear of retaliation. Maybe they've threatened to harm their pet or to kill their pet or to say, you know, you will never see your children again. Uh, and think of all the financial components, too. If you were to leave, where are you going to go? How are you going to get there? How are you going to pay for that? If you've got multiple kids and you're thinking of getting another apartment, do you think you're just going to find it overnight? How are you going to afford it, especially if there's been economic abuse, which happens in 99% of abusive relationships? Uh, then how, you know, maybe your your resume looks messy because your abuser didn't allow you to work or maybe your uh, jobs are short stints because they ruined that time at your work by calling and harassing your work or making sure you had a huge fight right before you went into work. So you were not composed and that affects your work uh, quality and everything. Uh, so those are just, you know, a couple of the reasons. And I, when I do trainings, I can talk about this for 30 minutes alone. <laughs> yeah. It's just all of the barriers that survivors face. Uh, so the reason that they don't just leave is because it's far more complicated and you're undervaluing how lethal that situation is and the resources that are available to them. If they don't know about Harbor House and they're trying to figure this out on their own, they're probably isolated from their family and friends. So that's one less resource that they might have. And they're trying to figure it out on their own. And maybe even cultural pressures, religious pressures, you know, divorces, um, a sin or something like that, um, which that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, right. Um, there's, as, as you're pointing out, there's mm -hmm. so many different variables yes. in this situation. And so when it comes to I'm sure there's many cases where you actually obviously help the, the victim mm -hmm. leave help them actually leave. Mm -hmm. Like everyone's always talking about, why, why don't they just leave? And I'm sure that's something you, uh, obviously Harbor House helps them with. Yes. So how do you help them with that? And I'm sure it can take days, months, weeks. Mm -hmm. Seven to nine times. D yeah, mm -hmm. to finally get that person out of that situation. So uh, how do we do it is we listen. Uh, so it's it's not about me. It's not about my team. It's not about how much we think we know because uh, survivors are experts of their situations. They know what their abuser is likely to do and not to do. And so we we work with them to create a safety plan, uh, which is basically trying to predict what might happen and what will I do if this starts to happen. Uh, so if you start to see that there is an argument, can you develop a code word system with somebody in your life that you text them orange? Okay. And they know to get help there right away or that you alert the neighbors. Hey, if you ever see or hear anything weird, can you just reach out and um, call the police or something like that? Uh, but creating a safety plan of, OK, so when you're going to go, what are you going to take with you? Where are those items? Can you store those items in a different location? Where are you going to go? How are you going to get there? If you only have one vehicle, can you save money in a secret Uber account to Uber away or um 
can you arrange that somebody come pick you up when you know that your partner is at work or uh, whatever that looks like? And then thinking of the where are you going to go part? Do you have family or friends or something like that that you can stay with? Or is Harbor House a good option for you? So helping to think through all of those different scenarios, uh, even on the finances side, do you know what your financial situation is? Have you been given any access to accounts, uh, because that's a, a huge part of it that we see is that individuals don't have any control of their money. And that creates a lot of complications of you can't pay for a hotel then, or it creates a very easy tracking method because they can look at their hotel bill and see like, oh, they're just staying over at Hilton Garden Inn or Quality Inn or something like that. Uh, so that's that's something of, of what our team is looking like. And also understanding that it's their choice uh, whether they want to leave or go because they are having to, survivors are having to make a lot of very hard decisions about the rest of their life. You know, you've invested all this time into a relationship. You love your partner. The abuse wasn't always like that. You know, it, it escalated in time. There are good memories. There are those inside jokes. And There's that's, all that history. And that's what makes it really hard to yes, leave. Yes, because you love them and you know that deep down they probably love you. They're just not showing that and they need help. Uh, and the, even that promise of change and abuser, we hear that all the time just in the cycle of violence and that honeymoon phase. You know, I'm so sorry. We can do couples counseling, which side note, we never recommend couples counseling. That's a very dangerous really? situation. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because somebody's holding all the power and control and can, and, you know, forming that narrative in a counseling session. So if you think of a, a victim and an abuser, do you think the victim's just going to come out and say like, oh, yes, here's what they're doing. They're gaslighting me. They're making me feel like I'm crazy. They are, um, you know, isolating me from my family and friends. Whatever they say in that setting, they will have to pay for. Uh, they cannot speak freely in that. Uh, and oftentimes uh, abusers are incredibly manipulative and they can control even law enforcement. Uh, people that we think are the best trained in that, they're they're very um, slimy is the word that comes to mind. Uh, but they can control what that other person's perception is of the situation and of uh, what's going on. So what what do you what do you oftentimes set up or suggest doing uh, if not couples counseling, is it just individual counseling yeah. or? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, because both individuals have things that they, I recommend that every person talks to a counselor. Like <laughs> you got a heartbeat. I think you might want to talk to somebody. <laughs> yeah, it's never a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, because we all have things that we, we go through in life, but we do recommend separate counseling. Uh, abusers can change. The, statistically, it is a very small percentage, and it's usually with some kind of intervention. Uh, but the some of the key things, like on an abuser side of that, if they want to change, they first have to acknowledge what they've done and take ownership and responsibility, which is incredibly rare because nothing ever is their fault. Yeah, it is, and that's uh, that's not just domestic violence. That's life. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. you know, it's an addict. It's it's all that stuff. You have to admit mm -hmm. that you've got a problem. Mm -hmm. And that you want to actually change, that yeah. you want to do something different. Um, there are some individuals who have taken that different path and who have um, chosen to not abuse anymore because you can definitely do that. Anybody can make that choice at any point in time. It's going to be hard work, just like for any hard choice you have to make in your life. Uh, but that's something that oftentimes trying to do that with the victim being strung along uh, is, is a very dangerous situation for that victim of they need to take care of themselves. Uh, the abuser needs to really do the work and get at it. And then the, the survivor needs to hold that abuser accountable too. If they promise they're not going to do it again, 
what are you going to do if they do it again? And yeah. then again after that and those kinds of things. And that's, again, incredibly hard because what if there are children involved? What if there are pets? What if you um, are all by yourself in this random town and don't know anybody? It creates a lot of barriers and dynamics. I'm sure there's been cases where uh, the abuser knows it's the abuser's hometown, but mm-hmm. the the victim is not familiar with the area. They're mm-hmm. from somewhere else, somewhere, whether it's far away or not. And know? what if somebody doesn't believe them? So we see that a lot, too, of well-known individuals in our community that we're working with the survivor of that relationship, mm-hmm. but they don't want it to come out that that person's there because they're like, nobody will believe me. Look at how well-respected this is. Look at the role they play in the church. Look at the the successful company they own or whatever that looks like. They, A, don't want to necessarily always ruin that person. Um, and B, there's no way that that person would be an abuser is what the community would say. Like, oh, well, they come to church every Sunday. Oh, they are our best giver. They lead a Bible study. They X, Y, Z. And unfortunately, because of how um, manipulative abusers are, that puts even more pressure on on survivors with coming forward of having that that fear of not just retaliation from their partner, but also from the community. And I love seeing on a national scale when people are held accountable because it helps to bring a little like look at R. Kelly. Yes. Like that whole dynamic. It's of, huge. Thank God there was finally a, a verdict out of that. I feel like we're seeing more and more yes. of, of that is, on a national mm-hmm. scale. Yes. So I would imagine that helps you in your situation to where uh, someone that's well known in our community mm-hmm. and there's someone that they've abused for them to come forward. Mm-hmm. What do you usually do in those situations where there's a, a you know, there's a, a well-known leader attached to one of these situations? Well, with the Illinois Domestic Violence Act, I can never disclose. So whatever is shared with me um, for like on when a survivor calls our hotline or something like that, like there are times when I go throughout the day and I've got that running list in my head of like, oh, I know the rest of your story that you will never say, but I can never say anything. I would never say anything publicly because that's not my information to share. That is the survivor's story to share if and when they want to do that. So that's the first thing that we're always reminding uh, survivors when they call our hotline is everything you share with us is highly confidential as guided by the Illinois Domestic Violence Act. If that confidentiality is broken. Our employee, which in the scenario would be myself, is terminated immediately, charged with a misdemeanor uh, and cannot come back to Harbor House. Uh, So that's something that because individuals are very hesitant sometimes to tell us that. uh, And I, I completely understand why. And so that's something of you tell us when you're ready. You know, but that's true of anything. If you don't even the first time you call us, if you don't even want to tell us your name, that's okay. You know, just tell us what you want us to know and we'll talk through it. And when you feel safe and ready, uh, we'll we'll take that next step in that journey. Uh, But it's something that like with when working with contractors, we ask, you know, like who would be coming to the facility because we want to make sure that we're not like inviting an abuser into our shelter when there is there the victim of uh, in their life and everything. Uh, So we we navigate those waters very carefully. But I, I think that. Um, empowering the survivors in, in making that decision of telling their story how they want to tell their story because some individuals don't ever want to because they don't want that to define them because I'm so much more than just a survivor uh, is the perspective of some individuals. You know, I'm also maybe um, a mother or a business owner or whatever that is. And I want to keep thriving and kicking butt in this area of my life. Um, and that one part helped to make me who I am. Do I want to go through it again? No, um, but they are wonderful advocates because they can identify domestic violence very, you know, 
easily once you've survived it. You know, thinking of Gabby Petito and everything that's going on with that case, I had a lot of survivors reach out to me um, just when that body cam footage came out. And they said, that was my abuser. And for individuals who've seen that body cam footage without training, you're probably like, oh, there was nothing wrong. Like everything seemed great and law enforcement did great. And um, when survivors watched that, they saw a very different story because they they saw themselves in, in Gabby's shoes um, oftentimes. So it's interesting dynamic as we know who who is in the community uh, might be on that list and everything. But we we always support survivors and helping them to make whatever decision they want for themselves. So <clears throat> what are all the different things that you do offer survivors? Because I'm sure there's there's uh, th- that it goes with saying, well, you say you can keep me safe, but how are you going to do that? That kind of thing, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so how does that uh, what are all the different services that Harbor House offers? Our first one and our main one that most people know about is our 24-hour hotline. So if an individual wants to start with making that call whenever they feel comfortable and safe, uh, that number is 815-932-5800. And that's even if you think that maybe your friend, your brother, your whoever that is in your life is going through this and trying to figure out how do I walk alongside them. Um, so all of anybody who's going to answer that call is a trained domestic violence advocate. Um, most of our staff, uh, we've been ramping up our certified domestic violence professional. So I am a, a CDVP. Um, so it's something that we kind of have to go through a couple more steps uh, with an exam and, and studying and continuing education and all that. Uh, so the hotline is the main one. Uh, we also, during the pandemic, launched our chat line, which is available through our website, so harborhousedv.org. And that is if somebody maybe doesn't want to make that phone call, you know, thinking of especially younger generations, they don't communicate with a phone call. No, it's it's texting mm-hmm. or yeah, yeah. whatever and, other social media yeah. platform. And I, I just saw a, a funny um, meme the other day. So I'm an introvert. Uh, and it, Same here. Yes. <laughs> a lot of people are like, really? You're an introvert? But I hear you on the on the radio and the podcast. It's like, I'm an introvert. You want to hear the beauty of that? I'm by myself. I'm by myself. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, being on the radio as an introvert is an introvert's dream. Yes. <laughs> because you actually get to interact with a bunch of different people, but you don't mm-hmm. have to see them and, you know. Yeah. And it's not going to be like, oh, I've got to interact with you for eight hours. Yeah. Like, right. I got you for 30 minutes yes. or five minutes or whatever that is. Yeah. Uh, but there was a, a meme that was something like uh, when an introvert is trying, is like building up the energy to make a phone call. It's like oh. you know, all the rocky scenes <laughs> of like working out. Like sometimes making that phone call really does feel like that. So maybe yeah. just starting with the chat line uh, and just messaging back and forth and kind of testing the waters of how safe do I feel? Um, do I see them showing up? Do I see them caring and believing me? Uh, so we've seen a big uptick in the number of individuals using our chat line, which I love. That's, That's why great. I pay for that service. And that is us. That's our advocates. You're not talking to somebody in Washington or San Diego. You're talking mm-hmm. to people in Kankakee and Iroquois counties that are aware of what's going on. Um, so our chat line is another one. We have counseling for adults and youth. And all of our services, are, again, are free or confidential. We really focus on the youth because abuse is a learned and chosen behavior. So if you really want to break that generational cycle of violence that we see, then that intervention for kids is critical. And we have fantastic youth counselors that I watch what they do. And I think there is no way that I could ever do that. And that's true of all of our our counselors and advocates. Something that Jim Rowe, I don't mean to interrupt you, but something that uh, State's Attorney Jim Rowe had said recently that was published in the Daily Journal. And I think you know exactly what I'm going to say. He said, how are the children? Mm -hmm. 
And that really resonated with me, thinking just about my own life and my own son, mm -hmm. like thinking, you know, how are the children? It, it starts with, everything starts with the kids, you yes. know, and so mm -hmm. focusing more on the youth and, and how they're doing will better set them up for the future and, and not becoming an abuser or mm -hmm. becoming a victim or mm -hmm. whatever it might be. So yeah, that's 100% true. Now, I, I think of a, a hotline I was just on recently where um, the survivor on the other end, she's like, you know, I, I don't know when is right to leave. Like, is he really abusive? So we kind of talked through some of that. And she's like, well, he's a great father. And I said, well, I'm, I'm glad you think that. But I, I just want to ask you a couple questions. You don't have to answer it. Uh, but, you know, has has your partner ever yelled at the children? Has your partner ever put you down in front of the children? Has your partner ever tried to turn the children against you? And I kind of asked these whole scenarios and she said yes to all of them. And I said, just something for you to think about is that's the example that your kids are seeing of how you treat somebody. Uh, that's the example that they're seeing of how they show love in a relationship. And I don't know if that's what you want them to be thinking what love is, because that's not love. Uh, that is control. That is abuse. Uh, so kind of breaking it down in some of those ways with helping uh, survivors to understand the impact of domestic violence on children and also just how it affects their ability to function. If you're familiar with ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, it's a survey that was originally the study started, I think, in the 90s um, by uh, a doctor, a physician out in um, California, and it is revolutionary. It's helping to understand how trauma impacts uh, children, especially trauma without intervention and how the more ACEs, so there's 10 questions that are asked and the, the more yeses that you say to those, the more that it impacts your, even your health. That if you, I think if you have six yeses, it can in, decrease your life expectancy by 20 years wow. because of that trauma that somebody is experiencing as a child. So all the questions are for if you're under 18. If you complete that as probably the, I don't want to say average domestic violence situation because there's not an average. Uh, but for that, it's oftentimes anywhere between like five and seven. And just think of where that puts you on the safety side of things. Um, so that's why we really focus and hone in on the youth through youth counseling and then adult counseling, helping survivors to heal, to break the, that personal cycle. Uh, legal advocacy, so support with the court system. State's Attorney Rowe is wonderful and very aggressive against domestic violence. And we love that. The court system in general is highly traumatizing to a survivor, though. Um, yeah, so, you know, imagine. you're having to face your abuser, you're having to tell your story and your story be critiqued and judged literally by a judge and other people of they all of a sudden have the right to ask you very personal questions of something that you're like, I don't even know if I wanted to do this. Uh, I'm just trying to move on in my life. So we can walk alongside survivors through that. And our our legal advocates, they are wonderful. And I received a, a note shortly after I'd first started and somebody thanked uh, Harbor House for providing their guardian angel, which was the legal advocate. So I always say I've never been called a guardian angel, but our legal <laughs> advocates are. Uh, they are, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then case management. So connection with community resources, emergency shelter. Uh, we've seen a big uptick in that. Um, I actually just pulled some of our statistics for September alone. And um, we served with, we provided 424 nights of shelter, which was a 58% increase over uh, fiscal year 19 September. Uh, so we've seen a lot That's of numbers. Huge. Yeah, it went from 269 nights to 337 in 2020 for September to 424. So we've just seen that steady increase. And again, I'm glad that people know that's a resource. We're also a, a pet friendly and animal friendly shelter. Yeah, because uh, people most have people pets. Don't know they about got, that. Yeah. yeah, they're part of the family. Uh, I just spoke at an event on Saturday to help bring awareness around 
domestic violence and animal abuse connection. And that's something that pets are like children in a lot of ways. They see the dynamics of domestic violence. They experience it. They internalize it and they become a source of threats and of power and control for the abuser. Uh, so those are just a couple of our services. We also have a resale shop uh, that is located in Watsika, which helps to fund our programs. Uh, so that is such a, a wonderful resource to the community as well as to survivors and uh, Iroquois and Kankakee counties. I am so amazed at the donations that we get that um, don't just go to our resale shop, but also once things are there, if a survivor needs anything, we pull it off the shelves and we give it directly to them, uh, whether that's clothes, housewares, uh, whatever it is. Uh, so I, I'm so grateful for all of the community support through our resale shop. And then things like this of talking about domestic violence, our prevention and community outreach team. Uh, I think I have for the month of October probably 10 to 15 presentations just for myself, not even counting our other, other presenters. And I I love it when people come ask me to speak or somebody from my team to speak, because that's what we need is we need to stop not talking about it. Yeah, we got to keep talking about mm -hmm. it, especially during the times when the numbers are high. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's it's whether the numbers are high or low is is no matter. It, it's an yep. important matter, no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I guess I want to know what can what can a person do to to help against you know domestic violence. What are the different ways people? I, I'm sure Harbor House is almost like any other organization. They're always in need of volunteers, and that's probably something you need more than anything. I would imagine, right? So the biggest way, like for individuals interested in volunteering, is to get involved with our community commission to end domestic violence. That's something that I um, I love that we launched that about six to eight months ago, and it's trying to empower the community to be more a part of the movement to end domestic violence. Uh, so what those meetings look like? It's once a month, and it's open to anybody in the community. Uh, you don't have to be a survivor of domestic violence. You don't have to be trained in domestic violence. You don't have to be a social worker. Um, we have individuals who check all of those boxes and others. Uh, that's That meets once a month for about an hour to an hour and a half on the third Thursday of the month. So if you go to harborhousedv.org slash events, uh, then you can read all about the Community Commission and Domestic Violence. Some of the things that they did, um, they broke into four different focus areas, and one explicitly was bartenders and servers. So this committee went to every single bar in Kankakee County and hung tear sheet flyers in every single bar. And how incredible is that? You know, they got to have the conversations with the bartenders about, you know, some of the, the signs of domestic violence, what that looks like, and then getting to put that resource in those locations because sometimes your bartender is also your therapist and you That's, might tell them things and yep. they see things. It's like, like they the person are, that cuts your hair. Yes. Same thing. Mm hmm. So. Yeah, that's that is so true is that you build that relationship. And there there's sometimes like flies on the wall, too. They see a lot more than people realize. Uh, and some of them could probably tell you exactly who the abusers and survivors are in our community. So like that's one of the success stories that's come out of the the commission. So I, I love to see individuals getting involved through that because there's the opportunities to get out there and hang flyers to um work maybe more behind the scenes and strategizing of what it looks like and just continuing education. We have different speakers come to each one. Uh, the November one, so thinking ahead, is going to be one of our youth counselors just talking specifically about the dynamics of domestic violence as it relates to children, how children are impacted 
and then what interventions you can do with children. So we always make sure that we combine that continuing education as well as the action because that's what we need is we need action. Um, so that's one way to get involved. Uh, other volunteering, if individuals are working directly with survivors, they do have to, per the Illinois Domestic Violence Act, go through 40-hour domestic violence training. Uh, we are certified to offer that, and we do twice a year. Uh, we just finished our last one back in August, and our next cohort is going to be in um, March or April. We haven't firmed that up yet. Uh, but that's 20 hours of um, self-study through like online modules and then 20 hours of lectures with our team. So with certified domestic violence professionals from your own community that know the dynamics and uh, language of our community. And that is something that it, there is a fee to that. That's actually not a cost that we impose, though. That's a cost for the the online modules of, of utilizing those services. Um those are the two main ways, I'd say. But I, I think thinking through your own personal life of how can you advocate for survivors in your workplace? You know, what policies does your workplace have in relation to domestic violence? Thinking of your church. Has your church ever taken a stance against domestic violence? You know, has um, your your pastor, your faith leader ever said from the pulpit that we are against this and here's some resources available to you and some things to watch for? And really hold people accountable for their actions. Have they ever gotten additional training in domestic violence? Or even have they ever had a conversation with me, with Harbor House, uh, to know some of the, the different things like couples counseling? That's especially common in, in the church. And in some situations, that's great. If there's no abuse, that is, I think, a wonderful solution. Uh, but when there's that abuse component, it just turns into a very dangerous situation. Um, so just thinking through in your own personal life, where can I hang tear sheets? Uh, who can I get connected to this movement? Who needs to be thinking more about this and getting more involved? And if someone wanted to donate to, to Harbor House, how do they do that? So if you want to donate um, financially, you can always go to harborhousedv.org slash give. Uh, our community is amazing. I, I'm a very active and involved in the Illinois Coalition Against Domestic Violence. I serve on the funding oversight committee for that uh, and work with, you know, assisting in other other committees at the statewide level. And I I love talking about Kankakee and Iroquois counties because other people are like, they really do that for you? Like <laughs> when I put out a request on our, our Facebook page, our community shows up in force and I'm like, I don't ever need to ask for toilet paper again. I think like it's just I, we've got enough toilet paper for the next 10 yes, years. Like we have the best community and uh, seeing how individuals come out to support survivors through all those different capacities. Donating is, is such a huge, wonderful one that I'm so appreciative of our community. Um, some things right now, current actionable items. Uh, we need gift cards. So we use gift cards as financial empowerment to help with healing from financial abuse. So whether that's gas to get to work uh, or to get a car fixed or something like that, or going and buying something that you need a special pair of shoes for work or something like that. Uh, so like gas cards, $20, $25 amounts, you know, Walmart, Walgreens, um, things along those lines. We give those out pretty regularly because we don't ever want the financial component to be a barrier or a consideration for somebody of maybe I can't do this on my own. Maybe I do need to go back. We want to make sure that they know that, nope, you don't, that's you, it's up to you. But there is support and our community is amazing and wants to help you in this journey. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, the money is always a, a huge, mm -hmm. huge reason. So just know that that's uh, that's something that everyone can help you with. Mm -hmm. And so. our our team, I I love my team. Um, I love talking about money 
and finances. And part of that is because I probably come from accounting and business background. I work with a whole bunch of social workers and I love social workers, but I think that oftentimes we shy away from the money conversation. So I have (laughs) quite a few of our counselors and advocates going through a financial social work certification right now with helping to combine that emotional and historical trauma of somebody's life with financial concepts of how do you marry those two because you don't realize it, but how you spend your money is a reflection of your own trauma too. Um, So like helping individuals to put together a spending plan, especially if you've never had one, um, which is also just what a budget is and everything. But sometimes when we say budget, survivors go back to that trauma of that's what they had to live in was in these rigid guidelines of don't do anything wrong. So we say instead like, oh, let's put together a spending spending plan of how you want to spend your money. What are your values? Um, so that's something that I love talking about money and <laughs> <laughs> love it when my team does too. <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. So yeah, especially in domestic violence. Yes, exactly. Um, anything else that you want to highlight? I mean, I, I know this w- once again, we could go on mm-hmm. forever. There's so many different things to cover inside the, the realm of, of domestic violence. Um, I guess one last thing I want to know, and, and maybe we did touch on this a little bit earlier, but um, what what are some other forms of domestic violence that often aren't saw or That's seen as question. as domestic violence? I don't think we have touched on. It. I've kind of given some examples throughout. Uh, so the main one that everybody thinks of is physical violence, physical abuse. Um, so that can look like hitting, pushing, uh, shoving, strangulation, which we talk a lot about strangulation. It's one of the most lethal forms of domestic violence uh, because, and the scariest part is you can die weeks after being strangled because of the, you know, think of everything that's in your neck region. It's connecting your your brain to the rest of your body. So we talk a lot about uh, bringing awareness to that. Because there's what, uh, some people will die of a, like a blood clot. Mm-hmm. Right. You can, Weeks yep, later. Or a carotid artery might be torn or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And that'll be from the strangulation. Mm-hmm. So you didn't actually die from being choked to death, but there's there's the damage that mm-hmm. is what actually and did it. You know, thinking of just even that loss of blood to your brain, whether that is, you know, manual, manual strangulation, which just I should have given a trigger warning um, for individuals who have been through this. Um, just maybe like fast forward 30 seconds. Um, but that it's not always just manually, like with somebody's hands, it can be with an object, it can be just anything to restrict somebody's breathing, forceful pressure on somebody's chest, things like that, because uh, that can affect your um, your brain with how it functions, with how you're remembering things, which oftentimes then when people are are strangled or physically assaulted in that way, people are like, well, their story keeps on changing. Yeah, because their brain kind of turned off for 30 seconds. Like, yeah. what do you expect? And like how that affects your memory. Uh, and so I, I'm very It's very almost like they have dementia, you know. Yeah, for that, that period of time as they're trying to remember what happened. So when a police officer responds immediately, they might not get the whole story because the survivor really doesn't know the whole story at that time. Maybe they blacked out and don't remember the chain of events leading up to that. That might come to them down the road. It might not. Uh, and that's something that I, I appreciate, like when we have, you know, prosecutors who understand that that's that's something that's so helpful and uh, we've got a great team on that side of things but always with our medical advocacy making sure that we can connect individuals to healthcare services so that's physical violence um, and then sexual violence that can look like anything that is non-consensual uh, that can be um, something as far as you know rape marital rape which is very much a thing and that's something that I see a lot um, oftentimes more in the faith community of not acknowledging marital rape uh, but that's something that at any point in time, individual has a right to say no uh, of whatever they want um, in relation to sexual acts or just their body. 
Uh, so that's, again, anything non-consensual. It can even be somebody wanting to disclose sexual preferences or anything like that as a way to hold somebody in a position of like, oh, well, if you don't do this, I will tell your pastor or your boss that you're into this freaky thing or something like that. Like that's something that is in an intimate setting. Like that's not for public information, but that is used as a source of manipulation. Um, economic abuse, which I mentioned, that happens in 99% of abusive relationships. So that can be withholding money, not helping, not allowing any an individual to see all of the financial resources that they have, all the retirement accounts, things like that. Um, forcing them to give the check to them, limiting what they can purchase, um, restricting their own educational goals and employment goals. Emotional abuse, uh, also verbal ab abuse. Those are uh, kind of one and the same. That can be like gaslighting, uh, which are you so gaslighting? Yeah, explain gaslighting for yes. those that. It is um, originated from a 1940s movie with Ingrid Bergman that's uh, called Gaslight. Uh, and it was, I think she won an Oscar or something like that for it. Uh, but a phenomenal film if you haven't seen it already. Uh, but Gaslight is basically kind of, you know, in short terms, crazy making. So you're trying to alter somebody's sense of reality uh, by making them think that what they've done didn't really happen or that a situation didn't play out as they remember it to be. So then they're questioning themselves. They're like, oh, well, maybe I do have ter terrible memory. Maybe I am going crazy. Maybe I'm not a stable person, which none of that is true. But the abuser manipulates the situation to create this false sense of reality. Um, there's a, a quote from the movie, and I hope it comes to me, um, that the the victim in that, so Ingrid Bergman in the movie uh, says something that she, you know, kind of was going crazy, was going out of her mind. And the, her friend who kind of comes alongside her and that says, you know, you're not going crazy. You are slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind, which is what gaslighting is. Uh, so then also putting somebody down, doing anything to tear at somebody's you know confidence and self-esteem and making them feel like a piece of crap because that's not OK. And that's not something that should happen a loving, healthy, caring relationship. Uh, so those are some examples of the verbal abuse. Spiritual abuse can be using somebody's religion against them. So maybe taking, if you're of the Christian faith, maybe taking a, a piece of doctrine out of context or a piece of scripture out of context, um, destroying somebody's religious icons. So an example I always use is, you know, going back to the the, the Protestant faith um, is if you had like a Bible that had been carried down throughout the generations. So you've got your great grandma's handwritten notes. You've got your dad's highlighters. Um, you've got your great, great grandma's prayer list in the front. Uh, but something that is so emotionally connected to the history of your family and then somebody tearing that up in front of you and burning it. Like that's that's horrifying and so sad that you lose that. But then also that connection with like the the history of your family's spiritual journey and of what that's looked like of you've inherited this faith and everything uh, and made it your own through each generation. Um, but those can be examples of, of spiritual abuse. Also forcing somebody into a religion that they don't agree with or limiting their access to that support system. Because oftentimes for some individuals, their spirituality and faith is a big part of what's helped keep them alive up to that point. Uh, and then another form is social abuse. So like digital abuse kind of falls under social abuse, um, using social media to control somebody who you can be friends with uh, or can't be friends with, threatening to post pictures of somebody, private pictures of somebody, which is also illegal. Um, 
isolating somebody, removing them from their support system, manipulating those friendships to turn all the friends and the family against the victim uh, to make them feel like they are all alone. And then also vice versa. So maybe um, with the survivor in that situation, you know, telling them that, you know, I really don't think that your parents have your best interest at heart. You know, didn't you catch that sly comment that your mom made about your clothes and everything? I think we need to maybe not see them for a while because I don't like how they're treating you. So it's creating this scenario that they're they're planting more seeds than what are really there, uh, and you, that's isolating somebody away from their their support system, who could be a source of help if they were uh, choosing to leave. So those are the main different forms of of domestic violence. So it's not just that that physical; it's all of these components. And and if you're listening to this and it's making you think of maybe somebody in your life or even yourself, um, I want you to know first of all, you're not crazy. Uh, that you are seeing things um, more clear than you think so, but you're somebody in your life is trying to convince you of the opposite and that you're not alone as you go through this journey. It is incredibly hard um, to, to leave an abusive relationship, uh, to make the decision whether to leave or to stay, but it's not one that you have to make by yourself. Uh, and I, I think that hopefully by the end of this, you kind of see the heart of Harbor House uh, of that, you know, you've got a whole team that's here ready to work for you for all of our, our free services um, and that you don't have to walk through it alone, that you can do this because you, look how far you've come. Look at how much you've survived. No, this isn't at all what you planned for yourself. You never envisioned it would be like that. That's the definition of domestic violence. That's the cycle of violence. It starts all wonderful and it slowly um, escalates, increases. The abuse starts and it just keeps on going back to that honeymoon, um, to the breakdown in communication and to an explosion back to honeymoon. Uh, but I think helping to start maybe doing some research on your own, give us a call uh, and we'd love to talk with you and do whatever you want to do. It's not about us. It's about you and your story and your goals. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, Jenny, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. That was very, very touching. And um, I uh, I want to say that, you know, when I had talked to you a couple times about coming out, you're like, oh, you must be really scraping at the bottom of the barrel. I'm like, what are you talking about? You really you know? are. <laughs> no, this is so this is so important. And it's so important for just for everyone to to understand a little bit more about domestic violence and obviously what Harbor House does actually mm -hmm. does and what it actually offers. So there's uh, there's so many important things that need to be said about it. And I'm, I'm really glad. I learned a lot today. So about Harbor House and actually just about domestic violence in general. So yeah. thank you for that. Thank you so much for asking me and for your persistent asking <laughs> to come on. I appreciate it and appreciate this opportunity. Um, there's something about the longevity of podcasts <laughs> that that was like kind of where my fear was of like, well, once it's out there, it's, it's out there. It's out <laughs> there. Yeah, yeah. But you, you did wonderful. So yes, thank wonderful. you again. Uh, so harborhousedv.org. Mm -hmm. If uh, someone uh, needs the services or just has questions or they want to get involved and whatever capacity they can go there. Um, and uh, anything else, Jenny? No, thank you so no. much for having me on. Yeah. I am looking forward to all other podcasts as well. So keep doing your good work. And uh, I I just love this, getting to know the people and places of Kankakee. And we got a great community and a lot of great people for you to talk to. Yeah, just like you. Yeah. Just like you, Jenny. Thank you for I'll for pay your you $5 support. later for saying that. <laughs> Thanks. Actually, I thought we agreed on 10 but that's okay. I'll let it slide. I only brought five. <laughs> oh, man. All right. All right. I'll take the five. All right. Well, that concludes this episode of Kankakee Podcast. I'm Jake Lamore. You can listen to previous episodes at kankakeepodcast.com or wherever it is that you get your 
your podcast. You can also sign up for our mailing list and uh, learn how you can become a sponsor and so much more at kankakeepodcast.com. And also follow us on social media. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram is at Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. It truly means a lot. And our theme song is by Lupe Carroll. People tend to stick to you.